Welcome to episode 208 of the Various Sunday Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from our virtual studio on the internet by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who is preparing for landfall of Hurricane Sloat, John Scott Sloat. The Sloats are descending on Fort Wayne. It's happening. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's happening. Absolutely. So, well, uh, we are recording well in advance because this episode drops on the day after Christmas. And you are where when this episode drops? uh, Somewhere in either Iowa or Illinois on our way back from Omaha. Okay, so you're driving home at this point. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, what 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 will be going on with uh, the Slope family here? Um, we are in. I want to say our last couple days of being together. So we'll be. I, I think we have plans to go to the zoo one day. I can't remember which day we're planning to do these things, but uh, we're going to the zoo one day. We're. I think it's going to be warm enough here that we're going to be able to be outside quite a bit. Okay. Um, we may have a, a little bonfire in the backyard. We might. Uh, uh, walk. We have a little walking trail attached to our neighborhoods. We'll probably go on that at some point. Do some things like that. Very good. Very good. Yeah, we will. Uh, we'll be in the car. So, I do have a. Uh, I think I've got a pretty good audiobook lined up. A true crime audiobook. So, that that tends to pass the time pretty quickly on the yeah. uh, on the ten hour, ten eleven hour drive on the way back. What? What is it about like the true crime unsolved mystery genre that work that really works in an audiobook or a podcast? Like what is it about it? Ah uh, gosh, that's a good question. Um I'm not sure I have a good answer for that other than um just the uh potentially if it has to be someone who's a good storyteller. The story has to be yeah. interesting in itself, but then the the person telling the story has to be uh, compelling in terms of the way that they put the story together, the way that they introduce the characters. Um, I, I think part of what appeals to me about true crime is the sense of this could happen to like my neighbor, like the sort of ordinary people, not so much mm-hmm. the high profile stuff, but the, the sort of, this is an ordinary person that otherwise is unremarkable from the world's eyes. And suddenly this really crazy thing happens to them that embroils them in a story that they would have never imagined being a part of. Hmm. That That's my take. What, what about you? I mean, you, you enjoy a good true crime. I, I do. It's, I think it's for, for me, it's the, there's a deep sense of injustice going on. Like, like <laughs> someone was killed. And, yeah. and, and no one has been brought to justice for this. And even though it, it doesn't happen always in the, in the podcast, you're just like, they, they need to figure out who did this. Um, yeah. um, or, or, you know, in, you know, the, the, the first great true crime podcast that really launched a genre serial, did he, or didn't he do it? You know, yes. uh, uh, you know, either way there's, there's injustice or justice and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think like bringing it to resolution, finding truth. I think I think is part of part of it for me. 
Yeah. No, that's, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's on the right track. Uh, I, we have reached, this is the last episode we're doing of 2023. Yeah. Big pause there, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was still deciding whether we were continuing on next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But this is the end of year four. Have we done this four years? Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. So if we were doing seasons, this would be the se- the season finale of season four. Um, I heard a statistic today on a on a podcast I was listening to that the average podcast only makes it seven episodes. I I can believe that. Like we are above average in that regard. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that 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 was our goal setting out. Let's be above average. Yeah. Yeah. I I I think we are wildly consistent and uh in sitting down and doing this podcast week in and week out. Yeah. Yeah, even though we didn't when we set out we did not commit to every single week. But we've been up for 4 years. Yeah, now I feel like we're we're in it. Like uh, <laughs> it's kind of like was... Cal Ripken Greek, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where they would do interviews with me, like, actually, I really want a day off, but I can't take it because I have this. I have I've played so many games in a row, yeah, that I, that I can't stop. Yeah, I think that's absolutely what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, well, if uh, you would like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on Twitter at VNS Pod. You can email the show, various and sundry podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook and on YouTube. And since it is, as you're probably listening to this, the day after Christmas, why not leave us a five star rating and a review? Why yeah. not? It's been a while since we've had one. It's been a hot like, minute. Well over a year at this point. It, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So. All right, so since we are talking, uh, this is our last episode of the year. We're doing this so far in advance. Our sports segment is going to be a little bit different since we can't talk about this past weekend's uh, NFL slate or even the NBA games on Christmas Day, uh, which, by the way, do you watch any sports on Christmas Day, typically? Um, yeah, I usually I usually catch at least a half of the Knicks. Okay. Usually they're, they're on at noon. Yeah. Always on Christmas day. Uh, and then recently there's been football games on, on Christ- Christmas day, um, particularly with Christmas falling on a, on a, on a weekend the last few years. Uh, yeah. and so have caught some NFL games. So okay. yes. Okay. Excellent. All right. Well, we're, we're going a little bit of a different route for this sports segment. Since it is an end of the year episode, Uh, We're going to talk just briefly about some favorite sports memories or stories from 2023. So uh, do you want to start, John, or you want me to start? Um, So why why don't you go first? Because I don't want to I don't want to steal yours because I just came up with one on the spot and I I hope it doesn't um, interfere with one of yours. So why why don't you go first? (laughs) Well, as I thought about this, the first thing that came to mind was actually um, back in, uh, I guess this would have been either late February or early March, I don't remember the specific day, but when Grace won the Crossroads League Conference Tournament Championship game, 
Uh, it was a home game, and they defeated Huntington University, despite the fact that Huntington led by as much as 18 points early in the second half. And Grace rallied all the way back. And it was the most uh, electric atmosphere I've ever seen at a Grace home game. The, the place was absolutely mm. packed out. And uh, Huntington brought a good size contingent as well. And so when they were doing well, they were actually pretty loud. Uh, and so once Grace started the rally, uh, it was even louder. Just a remarkable atmosphere. The, the, the place went crazy. And probably the defining moment of that game, there was a point where uh, Grace had just taken the lead for the first time with around a minute, 15, minute 20 left, something like that. And uh, Huntington came down the floor and Frankie Davidson blocked a three-point attempt that then a Grace player picked up and threw ahead to him and he dunked it. And that that's the loudest I've ever heard that arena. It mm. went absolutely berserk. So just a, a fun memory uh, back from late February, early March. So nice. what about you? You were there, weren't you? You were at that game, were you not? I, I believe I believe I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... One of my favorite memories of the year is also Grace Basketball. And it was just a month and a half ago where you and I actually ended up sitting next to each other uh, at uh, Grace versus Purdue. Yeah. Um, and seeing Grace play in that big time arena and seeing our biggest guy in the NAIA, Elijah, at 6'10", 300 pounds, go against the biggest guy in the NCAA. <laughs> Yeah, in Zach uh, uh, Zach Eady, and he's just how much bigger he was yeah. than everybody else. Yeah, that's um, crazy. And uh, and I just thought that was a cool day. Um, a lot of alum came out. A lot of students came out. Uh, I was walking around the arena saying hello to people that I didn't know were coming to that game. It was it was pretty cool. It was. It was. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I, I don't have a a, a lengthy list here. Um. I have two more. I have, you two, have two more. more? Okay, go for it. Um, so the Jets uh trading for Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. And uh and coupled with that is September eleventh, him running out of the tunnel with the American flag was like like just tear inducing. Uh and uh so he he runs out of the tunnel with the American flag. That mm -hmm. stadium is crazy loud and excited. And then four plays in, uh, the unspeakable happens, and uh, the season on the tubes basically. Yeah, yeah, tears the Achilles and it's it's done. Yeah, yeah. I re I remember that was a Monday night game. That was a the first Monday night game, September eleventh. Yeah, and I had my mentor group, so I wasn't watching the game, and uh, we we turned the game on, uh, probably mid to late second quarter and I'm looking at it. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not Aaron Rodgers playing quarterback. Yeah. And so of course you do what you do these days. You go to Twitter to find out what happened. And so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through and I'm like, Oh my goodness. On what? Like the fourth play of the game, he tore his Achilles. So I texted you immediately, of course, at yep. upon learning this. Which I'm, I, I'm confident there were others who texted you checking on your well-being. I, I had seven or eight wellness checks. 
after that. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yes. So, and you had one more. Uh, yes. Um, the selling of the Washington commanders for $6 billion. That's uh, a lot of money. That's no sports team has gone for more. And, uh, yeah, I just, I just buy uh, the Mets a few years ago went for $2 billion. And that frankly, that's just a lot of cash. And, yeah. uh, it seems like the price and worth of those teams is just going up and up and up and up, uh, regardless of, um, regardless of performance. I mean, how, how long has it been since the Washington commanders were any good? Well, I don't know. It, it, it's been a while since they've made the playoffs. So that coupled with, and this is another sports business story, but 700 million to Shohei Otani that we covered a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, then just wild, wild contracts out there. Yeah. Yeah. Cra crazy amounts of money in the sports world for sure. And it seems, it seems to be getting crazier year by year. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Do you wonder if if there's a if there's a bubble coming? Like, you know, obviously when the housing market gets overpriced, oftentimes you get a bubble, right? Where eventually sure. it pops and then values drop and same happens in the stock market, right? You get, you know, these markets that race super high and then all of a sudden all the investors decide this is too high, it needs a correction and then plunges it into, you know, uh, a mini recession kind of thing. Like, do you think there's a bubble coming for the sports world? Has there ever been a bubble in the sports world? I mean, has there ever been I a, know. I just, I just don't think so. I mean, maybe I guess it's possible, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I think, uh, I think it's hard for me to conceive of that, but I suppose if the economy overall, yeah, dropped enough for an extended period of time enough you could maybe see that i do think that uh i'm seeing i i think it it's going to get harder and harder for teams to get fans to physically attend games i think that's happening in football in particular yep because the experience at home is so good so much better uh-huh i mean you put it up on your big flat screen TV. You don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to fight crowds. You don't have to be pay cold. for overpriced food. You know, all these sorts of things. And honestly, oftentimes, depending on your seats, you, you probably see the game better from your TV than you do from the stadium, depending on your seats. Well, I, there's part of me that goes, uh, I think, Football and basketball are in better positions in the long term. Baseball is coming into a real issue where these big market teams with more money than anybody else are buying players for more money than other teams are worth or more than their owners are worth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a real problem for baseball. Um, and I think something has to be done in the in the term I don't know what that is but right. maybe that maybe that cre creates a bit of a bubble burst for uh, maybe baseball something happens um the players union just has so much power just so much power yeah yeah I, that would be the sport I would think is most likely to 
have a bubble that that causes problems is baseball yeah. out of the main ones. Yeah. Yeah. All right, John, it's time to move on. You ready? Sure. We are today talking about the top 10 theology stories as determined by Colin Hansen at the Gospel Coalition. So every year... I usually agree with Colin Hansen in his top 10, usually. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think there's any... We might disagree at points in terms of like ranking them, but in terms of like the top, what the top 10 is, I think he's usually pretty much spot on. So uh, we'll have a link to this article in the, uh, in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourself. Um, But uh, yeah, let's just, he works through them backwards from 10 to one. And I think we can do the same. Sure. Uh, I'll start. Number 10, Southern Baptist Convention disfellowships Saddleback Church over female pastors. This feels like a 2022 story, doesn't it? This feels like it was well over a year ago. You mean that it feels like it happened so long ago, or this was just the culminating moment in a story that stretches back a while? I I, I meant the first uh, okay. right. The, this sort of like, this feels like it happened a while, a long time ago, but it does feel like a culmination of problems that have been going on for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, uh, this, this is one of those things where it's a divorce that everybody could see coming. It was just yeah. a matter of when. Yep. Yep. And, uh, this was not surprising. Uh, I, uh, apologies to any uh, Rick Warren fans in our audience, but um, I was, uh, to put it mildly, put off by the way that Rick Warren handled himself in this in this whole process. Um, I mean, he made some ridiculous comments uh, from the floor of the convention, I, I believe, about just how he is trained and equipped more people for ministry than all of the rest of the Southern Baptist Convention seminaries combined and all this sort of stuff. And it just, it came across as smug, uh, arrogant, and full of himself in that context. Did you have a similar reaction? Yes. And uh, that does not make a person right on every issue or any issue. Um, Correct. But that seems to be the argument he's making. The fact that he's trained people makes him right on everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. when, when in reality, nobody's right on everything and yeah, we need to be okay. Like I affirm this, but I don't affirm this in conversations about yeah. people. Well, I mean, it's the, it's the epitome though of, of a pragmatic argument. Just mm-hmm. look at the big numbers. I have to be right. Like, how can you argue with my big numbers? You know, that sort yep. of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is something, you know, this is, this in one sense was the most, uh, high profile issue in terms of Rick Warren's Saddleback Church, but this is an issue that's still festering in the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of women pastors and how the uh, Baptist faith and message functions within the SBC. Um, I I heard a good explanation as, uh, because from the outside, we're both outsiders to the SBC, even though we consider... 
which is a blessing in this moment, right? Yeah. When, when discussing this. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, we, we, we appreciate and value the SBC. We love, we, we, we love a lot about what's going on in the SBC. Yep. Not everything, but um, in any case, uh, it's a, a good analogy. I heard as people from the outside, try to figure this out. Um, the, the SBC uh, can't tell any of its member churches what to do directly. That's not how the denomination is structured. But they can say who can belong to mm-hmm. the SBC. So uh, I think that's a helpful distinction that, that you know, it's not like Al Mohler and his cronies can get in a room and say, okay, that church uh, has to do this. But the convention as a whole, with all of its delegates, can say, yeah, you can't be one of us because of how you where you stand on these issues all right how about the next one john why don't you take that one okay uh pro-life movement regroups after uh, electoral setbacks um so basically in the wake of uh roe v wade being revoked this issue has been thrown back to the states and states have been passing laws like crazy and not all but a number of uh, perceived losses for the pro-life movement have taken place. Yes. Um, it is pretty striking. Uh, and I think, I think the more responsible pro-life folks have always made this clear that overturning Roe versus Wade, while crucial, important, valuable, is nowhere near the sort of ultimate end goal as if now that that's accomplished, the pro-life movement is just going to be like, oh, well, hey, I mean, we did we did what we wanted. Now it's over. Yeah. And all, the, the more responsible uh, advocates have made it clear, this just moves the discussion back to the states in terms of uh, legal actions, but even just more broadly. And this is, I think, what's concerning to me is that these sort of setbacks for the pro-life movement tend to reflect a larger culture that is not ready to get serious about putting an end to abortion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I think that's shown in polling uh, where I think we see, um, which you and I would be uh, uh, some of the most staunch advocates in, in, for for uh pro-life um but uh but we're probably in the what 15 20 percent range of, of of the country where it seems like most most people in the united states the majority seem to be at the 12 to 16 week um mark that's probably right uh and yeah it, you know overturning roe hasn't led to the decline in abortions, I think that we anticipated. Uh, I think we've seen something of a leveling. Uh, a leveling um, is is the numbers that I've or the articles that I've read seems to have have led to it lowering in some states but rising yeah. in others. I think uh, that's. I think I, I th- that's an important caveat. I think maybe mm-hmm. nationally, I, but I mean, for example, in Texas, it has absolutely fallen through the floor in terms of number of abortions. Yes. So I do think it, it varies by state, really, in terms mm-hmm. of the effect uh, that this has had, for sure, in terms of actual numbers of abortions. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then there, I mean, there's a whole lot of politics around, uh, around this, you know, the, the government paying for people to go across state lines in order to get abortions or states paying for people to cross state lines to get abortions, things like that. Well, and even the availability now of, uh, drugs that induce yeah. an abortion and whether it's legal for states to say no we, you live here in texas which means you can't buy medication and have it shipped from wherever louisiana or wherever uh so those are some of the, the ongoing aspects of the larger pro-life movement for sure yeah yeah it's and it's becoming an issue that's i think divided uh uh, the, uh, conservatives, um, broadly speaking. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Number eight. I'm a little surprised this wasn't a little higher to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Very, very uh, Colin Hansen, you know? Yeah. Timothy Keller dies. That's story number eight. Um, I, this is an, uh, an odd sort of, I remember where I was. When I found this out, do you? Mm -hmm. I think I was at home. I think I was working at okay. home that day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This this happened on the day that I was returning for my go encounter trip from oh. Brussels, hmm. and I had I had seen uh, I had seen indications that he he was in his last hours slash days that he was in 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 very poor health and then you get on the airplane you're in the air for you know eight ten hours unless you pay for the wi-fi you know nothing yeah, yeah yeah um and i land and i'm checking you know as i'm waiting in line at o'hare to go through customs like oh my gosh tim keller died so um I, I, I think I'm just surprised that he put this at number eight. I mean, he wrote the biography. <laughs> and, and it's on the website that uh, Keller had a founding uh, role. Yeah, in, in the Gospel Coalition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's probably his <clears throat> measured approach in terms of understanding Keller's popularity within a slice of mm -hmm. evangelicalism. Versus, you know, maybe the the whole spectrum of church and culture and all that sort of stuff. Uh, why don't you do the next one here, John? I know it's your uh, favorite topic. <laughs> uh, fears of Christian nationalism focus on a new speaker. Um, I so I want to break this one in half. You know, there's fears of Christian nationalism. Uh, this is the third year in a row. I went back and looked at the last two years. Two years ago, I think Christian nationalism was like number one or number two in his list. And then last year, there, was, there wasn't there was the words Christian nationalism, but it was definitely in there. And I, I, I think, you know, he even mentions in this how a definition is very difficult to come to around Christian yep. nationalism. He links a couple of articles. I, I really enjoyed Patrick Schreiner's article as well. Um uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think whether we can agree on a definition or not, I, there is something going on here, uh, with Christian nationalism, um, depending on how you define it. Um, I thought it was interesting though, that, uh, he ties us to the new speaker, 
uh, who's come to bat. And I know he mentioned the Bible in a particular interview, uh, but I thought it was interesting to put the Speaker of the House on uh, on this list. What, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I think that the the big issue to me, which he acknowledges, is the inability to come up with a definition that uh, can be widely embraced. Mm-hmm. And I do think, uh, I think the reason he mentions the new speaker is that he became a flashpoint for the lack of agreement on a definition. Hmm. Because I, I think as some people listen to what the speaker says, they think, so basically what he's saying is he tries to apply his Christian faith to his approach to government. To which I think a large chunk of Christians would likely say, good. Yeah. That, that's what you're supposed to do. And yet others hear that and they say, oh my gosh, he wants a theocracy. He mm-hmm. he, he basically wants to reinstitute Old Testament law and punish anyone who doesn't hold to Christian faith. Like, And again, that gets just to, to, to the bigger issue of uh, to, to me, it's more of the, he's a sort of uh, a Rorschach test of you see whatever you want to see in the speaker. Yeah. If you think Christian nationalism is broadly defined and it's the biggest threat in the history of humanity, then you see that in him. If you're a Christian who's like, well, I just think that your faith should inform your politics, then that's what you see in him. I just feel like everybody sees what they want to see in him, depending on what they already think about the relationship between politics and the Christian faith. Yeah. And that's not to say, I mean, and to be perfectly blunt, the reason that there's no, uh, the fact that there's no definition of this is one of the main reasons why I don't want to talk about it on the podcast. (laughs) Now, now in full transparency, have we had a conversation where we went like, where, where I have pushed you or you have pushed me trying to talk about this on, on the podcast? I don't, I don't think. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Okay. But I mean, we, we do pay attention obviously to what's going on in the church and the culture. Mm -hmm. And it, someone, I, I don't know that anybody thinks this way, but someone could look at our lack of addressing this and wonder why in the world if your if your podcast is in large part about what's going on in the evangelical church and what's going on in the world, how have you not talked about this? I I, I don't know that there's a ton of people out there like that, but uh, I mean this is why you you cannot find an even even finding a definition that a large number of people can agree on yeah. is difficult. Even so, people who claim to be a part of the movement itself, right? I mean, sure. when I come, you know, I scroll through comments on Twitter and, and those sorts of things. And I saw, I saw somebody put something up about politics and faith and mm-hmm. this guy responded, nope, Christian nationalism is the way forward. And I just look at him and I go, what does that, what does that mean? Are we, are we theocracy? Are we uh, yeah. just sort of this, you, you yeah. know, I, so yeah, but, I hear you. But then on the flip side, there's the like, here's a person who is just trying to apply, you know, take it away from this, the speaker, for example, someone who says, I think as Christians, we should advocate for the 
for the unborn and try to create protections legally for them. Oh, you're a Christian nationalist. No, <laughs> like no, like that's just a ridiculous. Like so, it's it's become John. It's become like the term woke. Mm-hmm. It's become like that even even the the expression critical theory. Like these terms have become buzzwords. That you fill that, with ever meaning. It, yes, yeah. that people yeah. who don't necessarily understand what those terms actually mean, but they know they're bad, just mm-hmm. want to trot out there and say, "Oh, this just lump that as that's woke, that's Christian nationalism." When it it, it may not be, it may just be something that you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the extent of our Christian nationalism discussion. Number six, that's you. No, I did Christian nationalism. Number six is you. you did? Oh, it's yeah. me. My bad. You're right. High profile conversions suggest disenchantment with secularism. And he lists uh, three, uh, ironically, uh, wait, are all three of those women? Uh, that first name is escaping me. I- Ayan Hirsi Ali? Yeah, not sure. Okay. And then Catherine Von Drakenberg, Drakenberg, and then Molly Worthen uh, came to Christianity from divergent backgrounds. That's the that's the first line of the explanation paragraph. So, the this Percy Ali had been a leading spokeswoman. There it is. Well, spokeswoman is. of the new atheism. Uh, this uh, von Drakenberg is a famous, apparently tattoo artist on reality TV. Okay. Turned away from witchcraft and occult, and uh, Molly Worthen studied history and taught in the most prestigious American universities. So just the the high profile conversions of these individuals. Were these on your radar before you read this article? I had heard of the first one, this Ayan Hirsi Ali, as because she was part of the new atheism crowd. I appreciate you reading the difficult names rather than me <laughs> in this instance. But even in the descriptions of her supposed conversion, I'm not necessarily sure that it's a that it's a full blown born again experience. Yeah, that, that it might just be more of a. I think Christianity as an intellectual system is the most viable way to go, kind of thing. It's kind of like the David Brooks conversion of a few years ago, uh, in that in that way, where could be you yeah. know in interviews he's going like, eh, resurrection. You know, some days I do, some days I don't believe in it. Yeah. Um, like, well, David, we, we need a little more commitment here. But yeah. So I'm not sure what to make of those. You should probably move on. We're, we're need to pick up the pace here. Number yeah. five, John. Uh, de churching trends defies uh, expectations. So okay. uh, there was, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago. Um, maybe it was this year about uh, the great de-churching uh, mm-hmm. and talked about the church over the last 25 to 30 years um, about uh, the church uh, church attendance. It was just dropping. Um, yeah. We have, we done an episode on de-churching. I, I know we've done on like deconversion early on and we, things like that. I think we've talked about some of these changes in terms of, the, the drops in denominational affiliation and some of those things. Um, I, I feel like we've done an episode on this, at least partially. Uh, I mean, the, the the summary paragraph points out a, a number of potential reasons for this. 
pointing out partisan politics, abuse scandals, um, and just as well, I think the anti-institutional spirit of our time, I think that's a big one. I think that's a big one too. This is one we should probably do an episode on. We should probably uh, do do more on this, but I know we're running low on time. So why don't we jump to the next one? Number four, Gen Z shows signs of spiritual revival. So uh, this, this is, uh, I think, in part, uh, he mentions here, uh, linked to the Asbur- so-called Asbury Awakening back in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, other signs as well. Um, I, I don't know what to make of this one in general. I, I, I have the, I feel like I've talked with enough people who are connected with ministry among Gen Z folks to say that there's probably something to this. What about you? Um, I don't know. I, I did get to visit Asbury. We do have an alum that works at Asbury that I, that I actually did a tour of campus and he showed me where the revival took place. That was very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. So, some of the videos that came out of that Asbury Awakening were just particularly outside of the sanctuary and sort of like on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, like I heard a story of, I think it was Denny Burke, was like walking in and like a shawl was thrown over on, on him and and you know, and if you know Dan, if you know Danny, that's not his yeah. scene. Nope. Um, but I think once nope. he got inside, he was he was doing just fine. So I don't know. I, I'm, on Gen Z, I take a wait and see approach because I mm-hmm. think Gen Z is just stepping into the workforce at this point. I think the what's the oldest Gen Z person? Is it is it twenty seven? Maybe 26? yeah. Um. So we're just seeing them enter the workforce. Um, yeah. We'll, We'll see what, let's take a wait and see on Gen Z. That's that's sort of my approach. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you're up, right? Number three? Or yep. is that me? Okay. Nope, that's me. Uh, activists seek to change theology of sexuality from within Christian communities. Uh, this is the Andy Stanley and the Pope aligned uh, one. So <laughs> Andy Stanley um, opened up probably, gosh, what was it, Doc? A couple years ago? Uh, where he came out with his book, Questioning Inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then has sort of taken that and pivoted uh, to a question, questioning of orthodox belief of uh, sexuality um, and things like that. And then um, we had Pope Francis, uh, even this, was it this week? I, I mean, we're at the week week of Christmas here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's made, he just said it's okay for them to, it's okay for a priest to bless same-sex marriages, but not officiate or deny historic Christian uh, marriages. And so yeah. we have this this really, really strange thing. And he, you know, uh, uh, Colin here makes the, uh, has kind of a nice summary statement where he says, the overarching problem, whether from seeker-sensitive evangelicals, music moguls, Roman Catholics, or a state church, is ministry philosophy that says theology must change to reach younger generations. And I think that's yeah. a, that's a great, uh, um, uh, 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 summary of this problem. Yeah. And it's at its heart, it's pragmatism. It's yeah. pragmatism and it's cultural accommodation. Yep. Um, so lots that could be said on that. Number two, chat GPT thrills frightens tech futurists 
uh, uh, chat GPT is kind of a catch all. I mean, that was, I think that was early in 2023 when that kind of burst on the scene or even late 2022, maybe it was this week in 2022. This, it was like December 18th or something like that. So it's, but I think just the, the, the general awareness of AI has gone from, uh, this sort of science fiction futuristic thing to, Hey, some version of this is here mm -hmm. and the effects that's having on, uh, education in particular, but, uh, as well as the church, uh, those are, those are big, those are big things. And I'm, I'm, I, I think, I mean, obviously when we get to number one, uh, you'll see that barring the unusual circumstance of number one, I yeah. think this would have been the number one story. And you might even say this at number two is actually potentially the biggest long-term significant one on the list. Others have been like the whole like pressures about marriage and that sort of thing have been around, but this feels like a new moment in terms of AI taking center stage or becoming such a massive issue in many parts of our culture. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, in some professions, it's doing work that they had previously done. Um, yeah. And in, in some, I mean, I don't think it's to the point yet where it's doing work better than a human, maybe a lazy human, but, um, but yeah, I mean, one of the problems we're having in education is students using it to write their papers. Right. I mean, that's, yeah just a clear one and uh doing historical research this way hey what happened at this event give me a summary of this and right um but i think it's here to stay also and so what what do we do with it and how do we engage it i think that's a hard 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 conversation yeah i don't think the issue is um do we use ai or do we not use ai i think the the actual conversation is in what contexts do we use it and how do we use it rather than a, an all or nothing kind of approach to the issue. Um, and then number one, Hamas attack on Israeli military and civilians receives unexpected support. Uh, so basically uh, the October 7th attack on Gaza uh, definitely shook the world. Um, certainly the Israelis, um, and then I, I think what's been most surprising, and he alludes to this, is the amount of support um, Hamas gets in the wake mm -hmm. of this happening, uh, particularly from uh, elite universities uh, in um, very, very blue cities. Um, I know uh, I saw on Twitter a city council in a, uh, San in Oakland. It was Oakland, California, and... Uh, they were saying that um, this was a false flag operation by Israel and they either killed their own people or they just faked it, which is just really heinous uh, um, and and morally repugnant uh, of the, the, the people of Oakland. Um, but yes, I think I think that's been interesting. And I I think the biggest um, the biggest one where I've gone like, what are you doing has been the United Nations uh, in all of this. Uh, and um, yes, it took, I believe it took them two weeks to condemn 
uh, the attacks on October 7th, something like that, maybe longer. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, but have regularly uh, condemned Israel for its action um, around the world. So, yeah, anything you want to jump in and say about Hamas and Israel? <laughs> Any quick um, takes? Keep it uh, under 30 seconds. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will say, uh, you know, I criticized earlier the, you know, every the use of blanket terms that people don't understand but um i do think that critical theory does help us understand some of these um alliances with people supporting hamas because they're viewed as the oppressed Mm -hmm. and so because they are categorized as the oppressed they are exempt from moral condemnation in what they do. So I think that helps explain some in our culture that you might initially be surprised. How can you support what what Hamas is doing, butchering human beings? And they say, well, they're the oppressed. Yeah. And we have to align with the oppressed in any scenario. And that justifies their barbaric actions. Again, not to say that Israel is perfect or has done everything right. They have their own issues and have made, you know, committed uh, acts that are that are morally wrong as well so but um yeah i think that in part explains what's going on but well that took us a while to work through john yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> a lot in there there's a lot in there but uh you ready to move on sure sure uh time now for this day in sports history all right this day in sports history uh december 26th day after christmas In 1919, the Yankees and the Red Sox reached an agreement to move uh, future Baseball Hall of Fame pitcher and slugger Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. I mean, that's a a pretty seismic event within sports history. Yes. And uh, Babe Ruth uh, eventually goes on to just be an outfielder, um, but... uh, is one of the best baseball players that ever lived. Uh, regularly threatened to quit baseball if they didn't pay him more money and go box professionally. That'd have been interesting to see. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Nineteen seventy-one. Muhammad Ali finishes off German uh, Jurgen Blin uh, with yep. a thundering right cross for a seventh round knockout in a non-title heavyweight boxing contest in Zurich, Switzerland. Yeah. You ever been to Zurich? Never been to Switzerland. No, no. That's on my bucket list. Switzerland is for sure. Yeah. Switzerland be a nice place to visit. I've heard wonderful things about the the Swiss. Um, I've met one Swiss man. Uh, 1900. <laughs> uh, uh, 1990. Oh, excuse me. 1990. Uh, Gary uh, Kasparov. Did I get that right? Kasparov. Kasparov defeats fellow Russian uh, Antoloy Karpov to retain the World Chess Championship. Anatoly. Anatoly Karpov. Okay. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I consider chess a sport. Personally? Well, the, pi- the, the pickings were a bit slim for December, December 26th. 26th. Interesting. Um, 1991 future pro football hall of fame coach Chuck Knoll retires as head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers was coached from 1969 
uh, two years after the NFL was formed um, to 1991. That's a yeah. long time, 1969 to 1991. Well, the Steelers have only had, the, I mean, think about this. They had Chuck Noll for all those years. And then Bill Cowher took over. Yeah. And they had him for a while. Mm-hmm. And then they have Mike Tomlin. I mean, they they have been the picture of stability when it comes to head coaches in their franchise. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you want to know what the Dallas Cowboys were very much on that trajectory uh, with Tom Landry. They, they, they could have had something similar, but then Jerry Jones bought the team and <laughs> started hiring and firing people like crazy. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And it's so been doing you... that ever since. Yeah. Who do you like out of that list? Um, maybe Chuck Knoll. I mean, that's okay. That's just impressive uh, to be the coach from 1969 to 1991. And it's certainly somebody that we have not used before. Yeah, yeah. We may have used the babe before. I'm sure we have. And Muhammad Ali. I'm sure we have. I don't know about Gary Kasparov, but you're hating on chess. So, Well, I no, no, no. I don't hate chess. I just don't think it's a sport. <laughs> okay. Anything you wear a three-piece suit to is not a sport. I okay. Well, I mean, if you look back to how Tom Landry dressed on the sidelines, that's that's. But he's a coach. He's not a. He's not. A, he's not a participant. He's not an athlete. Okay. You know. Okay. I mean, you look. Yeah. Okay. I guess coaches, which again makes it ridiculous that in baseball, the manager slash coach wears the uniform. That's yes. ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Like you. Like in case there's a big problem, he's going to step in and play. <laughs> right. Right. All right. One thing you liked. Uh, I have been reading uh, the little classic book on the incarnation by Athanasius. Um, have you, have you read that book before? The, the, on the, on the incarnation by, uh, by Athanasius. Long time ago. Um, wonderful little introduction by C.S. Lewis. Uh, that's about, gosh, probably half the book. Um, but, uh, but great, great read. Um, and I'm trying to start a new Christmas tradition of reading it every year. Um, and it's, it's been really, really good. Nice. Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, a book as well. This one by Tony Reinke called God technology in the Christian life, which I suppose is appropriate in light of one of the stories on the list today. Yep. Um, I think, his approach is incredibly level-headed on these issues. He's not a, wow, technology is fully amazing and has no issues, as well as he's not a, I'm going to be a a, a neo-Luddite who basically is like, I'm rejecting all technology and, and going to go fully analog on everything. But part of what's great about what he does is his, his understanding of how God's sovereignty works within and through technological advances and things like that. So... Uh, I, I think it's an excellent read on that subject. That'd probably be my go-to book now on the on the on the subject. It's a little longer, but I still think it's a it's very readable. Sounds like it's due for a new edition with Chat GPT coming out. And uh, this came out. I mean, it was came out a year ago. It's like two a year or two ago. Probably two years ago now. That's one of those um, things though that you could almost update every every two years. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not dependent on specific technologies. Right. Yeah. And so his approach is not like, Oh, 
I have to say everything I could about this particular kind of technology. It's the big picture uh, approach to technology. So hmm. that is my one thing I liked. Well, John, we've gone a little bit longer than normal. Uh, I suppose that's appropriate as a year, as an end of the year episode, right? I mean, yep, I think so. 208 consecutive weeks of publishing content. And Lord willing, it'll be 209 when we get back from Christmas. Lord willing, indeed. Indeed. That during the first week of January. So um, four years. That's that's way more. I mean, if you think about it, that's probably like a at least 150, 160 hours of content that we've wow. produced. Yeah. You know, at some point, one of us is going to be hospitalized for a while, and we're not <laughs> going to get an episode out. Although the other could do it and just publish an episode. Hey, pray for my co-host. They're they're down. You could good. I I don't anticipate any hospital stays anytime in either of our futures. We're both healthy people. Who does anticipate hospital stays though? Yeah, well, Who's like looking at their calendar like, well, the third week of July would really be ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, Hurricane Sloat is coming to town, John. So, uh, yeah. With all the revelry. <laughs> all right. We have talked favorite sports memories from 2023. We have talked the top 10 theology stories of 2023. We have talked about Chuck Knoll coaching the Steelers for a long time. We've talked about On the Incarnation by Athanasius and Tony Reinke, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. So I think, by definition, we have discussed our various and sundry topics. And all that's left to say is, until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.